Hey there, folks. We are back on the long road to ruin. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And on the docket for tonight, as we go to very high heights and very, very low bottoms, it's the Candyman trilogy, which took place from 1992 to 1999. And we're doing this because, as if you're hearing this, I'm sure you know already, there's a new Candyman in theaters now from Jordan Peele. Joining me as he does on most of these is Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Hello, everyone. Fuck you, especially to Microsoft. Just in fucking entirely for fucking over my entire my whole entire scripting process and my whole timetable for tonight. Uh, welcome to an hour-long proof, a little bit of a treatise, if you will, that horror is indeed not the dumbest genre in Hollywood. It is not for the stupid. And in fact, the very best of it kind of comes from the most insightful and observant mind tethered to the most malleable ma imaginations. Did you see Candyman when it came out in 1992? You mean when it came out in theaters? Yeah. It was 10 years old, Mark. Were you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, but I mean, if, if we're being entirely fair, I was 10 years old, but by that point, when I was in second grade, I conned my dad into renting RoboCop for me. Fair enough. So, so, so I'm not going to pretend you... it entirely should have been <laughs> out of the when realm was the first, of possibility. When, when was the first time you saw Candyman? Because this couldn't have been it, right? You've had to have seen this like years ago i'm sure no no oh boy when was the first time that i saw Candyman? uh this is the first viewing for say, me well yeah because and and i of course never hold this against you you rather consciously avoid horror yeah teach, teach I, their own no judgment here's the thing you know i've what i've learned on this experience of podcasting and, and dip, dipping my feet ever so gently in the horror genre is that there is some really great horror out there that oh, yeah. goes beyond just mm -hmm. you know meat factories and gore and whatnot, and that is kind of the the sad tale of this Candyman trilogy. Is oh, it yeah. starts yeah. so good. There's this is like I didn't know this was in my wheelhouse until I'd watched it, and then it's yeah. like oh my god, this is right in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And then the next two movies are dumber than shit. Well, and, I, and, <laughs> that's, back the, to and that's that's the point that I really want to drive home tonight mm -hmm. is the fact that this is one of countless movies I could name. Mm -hmm. that defies this really grating elitist notion mm -hmm. that somehow there just can't be anything that's cerebral or thoughtful about genre movies in general, whether we're talking about sci-fi, about, about horror, you know, uh, far-flung fantasy, you know, superhero adaptations, what have you. Uh, it's uh, it's why it's so often treated as as this big novel deal when a right. movie like Aliens or Black Panther or The Dark Knight comes along and really makes not just enough of a box office splash, but enough of a critical impression. Right. That it actually garners some awards buzz. Like, for example, you can say what you will about the notion that, oh, maybe Heath Ledger got the posthumous Oscar as the Joker just 
sort of out of out of tri- out of out of pity. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, kind of the the same way Rey Mysterio got a World Heavyweight Championship run. Hang on, still playing the drinking game. <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter is that was also a bona fide, iconic, spellbinding, scenery chewing, spectacular work of artistry mm-hmm. that he wove on that he wove on the screen. Well. I mean, and and you asked when you asked when I saw this, and I think when I saw this, I want to say it was probably sometime in early high school. Okay, uh, chances are, I would say knowing me and knowing my options at the time, uh, two possibilities. Number one, I grabbed it off the shelf at one of the two really quality rental places that we had in Mitchell, South Dakota. Or I caught an edited version on TV at some point, either on an HBO or show Mac or Showtime free preview weekend, or I caught an edited version on something like TNT or TBS, or I don't know, fuck for all I know, maybe it was on USA up all night at some point. I just think you remember when this came out and, you have to remember, like I said, I, I was already not a huge fan of the horror genre. Um, mm. You know, I had friends that that turned me on to like Nightmare on Elm Street. I've seen I'd seen those as a kid. Mm. Um, and again, the radar thing was never an issue in my house. My point being there <clears throat> two things that occurred to me as I was watching Candyman now for the <clears throat> first time in my mid 40s. Mm. I wouldn't have appreciated it for what it was back when I back when it came out, even if I had seen it. Um, but two. I remember actively avoiding the horror genre and I remembered um, as this was where I was going with this. I remember the marketing for this at the time. This was marketed as yet a lo- another in a long line of slasher films, which I was not interested in. I that, did not, that does it such a disservice. That's where I'm going with this is that, which is also why I wouldn't have appreciated it back then because I really didn't have, I mean, people who've listened to the podcast know I'm a professional social worker and, but I've always had as an adult, a deep abiding interest in the social and the political. And it didn't really happen until I was in college and then years later. So not only do do the people who put out this movie just sell it as yet another in a long line of slasher movies with a monster who's, you know, killing blonde women, (laughs) which I was deeply disinterested in, but then you know, it, its subtext and its uh, its themes are, are resonate with, or should resonate with a much older audience than I think this was even aimed at. Mm-hmm. It's it's a movie which I'm not surprised didn't do well in its first offering, but came to be a cult classic because it's not one that you can truly appreciate it until you've lived a little. Well, see, and that's the thing about a lot of horror mm-hmm. is uh, the. Uh, the aesthetic, the yeah. presentation, the tropes, they are so often the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down. They are they they are the bite of the lime and the lick of salt that makes the tequila bearable. Uh, I'll okay, I'll I'll give you an example. And in one that after all this time it might be a bit of a gimme for you, but for everybody else, who knows that th- this might be a little bit of a teachable moment for you. Uh, let's play guess that movie, Mark. Okay. I'm going to give you the background 
of what inspired it. And mm. I want to see if you can tell me which movie I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. So, uh, it was founded on a lot of stories that came out in, if memory serves, I want to say it was early 80s, late 70s, Okay, I think. Uh, it was originally devised by a former English teacher. And the stories were about mysterious, sudden deaths that occurred in mass and defying mm -hmm. explanation among a very certain class of Southeast Asian immigrants. Okay. And the truth is what was happening was they were coming over from a very, and I don't say this, you know, mockingly or, or condescendingly, a very superstitious culture mm -hmm. that had very strong beliefs about the necessity of the ability of their shamans mm -hmm. to defend against demons that would assault them in their dreams. This is going to end sleep. up being either the ring or the other one that came out around the same time. Uh, not quite, not quite. Okay. Um, that, that would attack them when they, when they were most vulnerable. And as it happened during that time, and actually it's, actually it's a, it's a funny story because I remember that when I was growing up in Spring Lake Park, Minnesota, uh, the family that lived in the big house across the street from me, was I believe I want to say I think they were I think they were Laotian, as a matter of fact. Um, a lot of American operations in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos at the time displaced a sea of immigrants to the United States, split up families, split up villages, split up those key communities and groups such that they found themselves in in a, in a strange land and without the immediate protection of their of their shamans of their spiritual leaders to turn to and so they had every reason it turned out to to fear the, these dream demons that they had that they had grown up dreading Mm -hmm. And so many of them all of a sudden just became very reluctant to sleep. They were doing anything they could to stay awake because mm -hmm. without their shamans, they were afraid that to sleep would mean to die. <clears throat> and so of course your body can only do that for so long. And so many of them all of a sudden were just experiencing these sudden, I believe it was heart attacks. If I recall, I actually know the story sleeps. I don't yeah. remember where I've heard this before, whether it was through something yeah. involving social work, but I, I know this story. Anyway, what's the movie? Yeah. Do, do you want to hazard a guess? I did, and I was wrong. What was the movies? The inspiration for Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, it's funny. <laughs> so I was like, that would have been my second guess. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's, um, moving this along. Um, so Candyman comes out in 1992. It's based on a Clive Barker short story. You got any notes on the production we want to get into real quick before we uh, talk about the movie? Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, I do. And it plays nicely into the little guessing game that I just decided to play. Because much like Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, this began as Clive Barker's sort of social commentary via his short story that can, I believe it's, it was called... It's The Forbidden, I think. The Forbidden, 
Yeah, I think it was the forbidden. Yeah, I almost, I almost is. called it the condemned. I, that's why I had to double check my notes. <laughs> nope, forbidden. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, the forbid, the forbidden, which was his observations and meditations on the culture of Liverpool's segregated, really, you know, notably poor urban areas. Uh, the thing is, um, director Bernard Rose was absolutely taken with the story. And at the same time, he was also taken aback by the racial prejudice and as, and as, as he put it, dynamic architecture of uh, Chicago. And so he kind of made a bit of a pitch to Barker that he wanted to take the forbidden and he wanted to transpose many of those themes to his more familiar American setting. What, what he himself had, had observed and real and really processed. And so, you know, they had a deal. They were off and running. He decided to set the film around Cabrini green, which itself what, what was extremely convenient for the film's themes, which I'll, which I'll get to as we discuss them, in that it's sort of this whirlpool of poor construction, violence, and notably high robbery rates that is just sandwiched right between a pair of affluent Chicago neighborhoods. Um, and so... Even during filming, you had this kind of collision of two worlds in that when they were filming right there, actually at Cabrini Green, one of the ways they unexpectedly brought some authenticity to the production was they paid off local gang members to serve as extras in many, in many of the scenes and to just generally kind of keep the peace during production to not cause any chaos. Uh, when uh, pretty much, pretty much all the, all the locals that you see in the scene, that's just, uh, those are just local gangs. Uh, they're, they're in their own clothes. They, they weren't outfitted by wardrobe or any, or anything else. That's, that's just their gear uh, as, as just them. The only thing that's, really kind of artificial is inserted is the dialogue that you hear along that you hear along the way. It's uh, it's overdubbed, you know, when they're, when they're shouting up the stairs, Hey, five Oh coming up the stairs. I think, I think there's story. a line that actually happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> happened well, to me in yeah. the Bronx. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, it does happen. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That was, that was an overdub. Uh, they did have, it wasn't perfect. They did have a couple of incidents. Uh, one, it, a couple times, you know, bullets were fired, were fired into some of their equipment <laughs> on a few occasions. Uh, but it was, it was largely without incident. And that had to be a trip to film because the other thing is, is the fact that part of this movie is based on an actual, on an actual crime. Uh, the murder of Ruthie May McCoy Actually, the, the, the part that's described about how she was killed when an intruder broke into an apartment by 
pushing through an opening behind the bathroom medicine cabinet. That happened. Mm-hmm. That's that's the <laughs> thing. That's not that's not bullshit. Hmm. Um, the uh, the casting of Tony Todd was was kind of a happy accident because evidently he's who's he's he's the guy you get when you can't afford Eddie Murphy. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> uh, he was their first choice. Wow. He was their first choice. And as a matter of fact, uh, right behind Virginia Madsen, they had Sandra Bullock waiting and waiting in case she wasn't able to step wow. into the role. So it's a good thing everything shook out the way it did because Tony uh, Tony Todd absolutely cemented himself from the word go as a horror icon on par with Kane Hodder and uh, Robert England easily and uh fuck the sequels he only needed one movie to do it yeah um the right yeah yeah (laughs) uh the special effects as as they often were at the time were about 99 percent practical and thoroughly innovative they uh, those were actual bees by and by and large, in most of those most of those close up scenes, those bees were the real deal. I don't mean uh, to upset they, your I don't mean to upset your flow, but all I could think about through watching these three movies was Eddie mm-hmm. Eddie Izzard. How do you like your women covered in bees? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that <laughs> because in order to use real bees and to keep it mm-hmm. as safe as possible, they had to. Oh God, I forget. I forget what the term is for the area that they that they set up but they actually bred bees on location and so they could make sure that they were able to kind of harvest and employ bees that I think were only about a day or two old mm-hmm. so they hadn't had time to, to develop you know their their toxic stings wow and it's a good thing because those were actual bees that were coming out of Tony Todd's mouth. Uh, on at least one occasion, what happened was uh, they, they they had put a little bit of a a little bit of a dam or mm-hmm. uh, or a barrier a little ways inside of his mouth to make sure they couldn't root around too far and do too much harm. But a couple of them still managed to get around it. And uh, he, he told a story in an interview that on at least one occasion, he could feel it uh, crawling around and milling about towards the back of his throat. Uh, he did end up over the course of, I think it's over the course of all three movies. I think he was stung a total of somewhere between 25 and 35 times. Jesus Christ. But, but uh, none of them were in his mouth. Uh, they mm-hmm. were all they were all when filming the torso shots. Gotcha. Um, another interesting effect that they achieved was a way to get some of those phenomenal reaction shots out of Virginia Madsen, mm-hmm. and it was they employed hypnotism uh, with with her consent. Uh, she agreed to be taken to a local, reputable, well-vetted hypnotist. Kind of gave it a trial run in the office, and uh, Ed was absolutely wowed and fascinated. Agreed to go along with it for shooting, but uh, Bernard Rose was given a certain trigger phrase that would cause that um, that really docile-looking trance state 
that we see throughout uh, anytime it was uttered and it just it just worked like a charm uh, there would there would be whole blocks of filming that she just couldn't recall until there was i think there was one point i don't think it was even one particular incident or anything unfortunate but i think after a while the sum of it just became that i think after once she said oh okay that that's it i th- this has been fine but i i can't do that any- i can't do this anymore it's it's just it's it's too much it's it's too intense but still god what brilliant commitment to your craft holy shit to actually agree to be hypnotized like that uh during takes i mean there there's method acting and then there's actually kind of relinquishing control of your faculties to a director which man cinema history will tell you not always a gamble that pays off mm-hmm. i think that's I think that's, I think except for one thing, that's really the gist of my notes. And that is, and this is something that I, again, I know I'll come back to later. Uh, the MPAA for, for all the gore and, and everything, uh, all the, all the extremely visceral kills to, to hear, I believe, I believe what Tony Todd has said uh, with with just perhaps a dash of cynicism was that 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 wasn't what really set the MPAA off. It was they had some issues with certain scenes that they felt maybe went a little bit too far with depicting you know, uh, interracial sexuality or sensuality. Yeah, as, yeah. as I th- as I think he put it to paraphrase to paraphrase paraphrase you know oh you you want to have you want to have a a big imposing black black man cutting people up with up with a hook that's fine that's fine but black man with a white women mm, bridge too far all right let's get the mpaa by the way indeed um let's get into the movie here excuse me everybody um all right So uh, we'll do a little plot synopsis here for you. This is the first Candyman movie. (coughs) While researching urban legends, Chicago semiotics graduate student Helen Lyle learns of the Candyman, a spirit who, when a person says his name five times in a mirror, appears and kills a summoner by using a hook attached to a bloody stump on his right arm. She learns from two cleaning ladies that Ruthie Jean, a resident... Slight slight interjection, if you don't mind. If, if you'll pardon me just this once something that I have not, that I have not tried that we may have to do kind of live on camera before the show is over. I'm told that if you go to the website for the remake on your phone and you have your mic enabled and you say Candyman five times, it will show you the reveal trailer, like, like the final trailer for the movie. A resident in the notorious Cabrini Green housing project is summoned to have been killed by the Candyman and discovers there have been 25 similar murders. Dun, dun, dun. Skeptical, of course, Helen and her friend Bernadette Walsh repeat the Candyman's name to Helen's bathroom mirror, but nothing happens just yet. 
Helen and Bernadette are working together on a thesis on how the residents of Cabrini Green use the Candyman legend to cope with hardship. So that's what it says here in the wiki. The word they're looking for is trauma. <laughs> but we'll get to that mm -hmm. later. She and Bernadette visit the scene of Ruthie Jean's murder, where Helen discovers a room where apparent offerings have been left for the Candyman. Afterwards, they meet Ruthie Jean's neighbor, Anne-Marie McCoy, a single mother raising her infant son, Anthony, both of which will be appearing in the new movie uh, as adults or older adults. That evening, Helen and her husband, Trevor, have dinner with Professor Philip Sell, an expert on the Candyman legend, who exposits that the Candyman, born... <clears throat> born... Um, Daniel Robitaille. Yeah. <clears throat> da, 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 da. Where was I? Born in the late 1800s as the son of a slave, grew up to become a well-known artist who was highly sought after to paint portraits of wealthy whites. However, after he fell in love and fathered a child with the daughter of one such family, hey, where are all the white women at? Her father sent a lynch mob after him. Once captured, they cut off the right hand and smeared him with honeycomb stolen from an apiary, attracting bees that stung him to death. His corpse burned in a pyre and his ashes scattered across the land on which Cabrini Green was eventually built. This has got like a poltergeist vibe to it. When Helen returns to Cabrini Green, she is attacked by a man who calls himself the Candyman. After surviving the assault, she identifies her attacker, her attacker, who turns out to be the head of a gang called the Overlords. The police assume he is responsible for the murders. However, the real Candyman, dun-dun-dun, appears to Helen in a parking garage and hypnotizes her. He explains that because she has discredited his legend, he must shed innocent blood to perpetuate it. Helen blacks out and awakens in Anne Marie's apartment covered in blood, to find Anne-Marie's pet Rottweiler, who has been decapitated, and her son Anthony stolen. The distraught Anne-Marie attacks Helen, with whom the, uh, whom the police arrest, while she is defending herself. <clears throat> uh, after Trevor bails her out of jail, Helen looks at a photographic slide taken during her visit to the Cabrini Green, and finds that one contains the Candyman. Dun-dun-dun. He appears inside Helen's apartment and cuts her neck, causing her to bleed and pass out like she does. Uh, Bernadette arrives at Helen's apartment, and when Helen comes to see, uh, comes to, she sees that the Candyman has murdered Bernadette. Framed for the crime, Helen is sedated and taken to a psychiatric hospital where she is kept in restraints. A month later, doctor, a psychiatrist Dr. Burke interviews Helen, and it goes as well as you might expect, to prepare her for her upcoming trial. She attempts to prove her innocence by summoning the Candyman like you do, who appears and murders Dr. Burke, allowing her to escape despite being framed for Burke's murder. She returns to her apartment to find Trevor now living with Stacy, a student of his with whom he had been having an affair. Ellen confronts him, then flees to Cabrini Green to confront the Candyman and rescue Anthony. When she finds the Candyman in his lair, he tells her that surrendering to him will ensure Anthony's safety. Offering Helen immortality, the Candyman opens his coat, revealing a ribcage wreathed in bees, covered in bees! The bees pour out of his mouth, and he kisses her and stream and stream down her throat. He vanishes with Anthony and Helen awakes to discover a mural of the Candyman and his lover who bears a striking resemblance to her. And the plot thickens. Um, Candyman promises to release Anthony if Helen helps him strike fear into the Cabrini Green residence. However, attempting to feed his legend, the Candyman reneges and attempts to immolate both Helen and Anthony in a bonfire. The Candyman is destroyed by the flames like you do to a ghost, because ghosts burn from... Never mind. And Helen saves Anthony, but dies from severe burns. The residents, led by Anne-Marie, go to Helen's funeral to pay their respects. At home, the grief-stricken and guilt-ridden Trevor looks into the mirror and says Helen's name five times, whereupon Helen's vengeful spirit appears and kills him with a hook. 
In the Candyman's former lair, a new mural of Helen dressed in white with her hair ablaze is seen, implying that she now belongs to local folklore. All right, let me get started here, and then I'll let you have the last thing and move on to the next two movies. So one of the things I... This movie is like eight-tenths really good. Um, I'll talk about the eight-tenths first, the positive stuff, and I'll talk about my issues with it, but those last two-tenths. Uh, I love the idea... <clears throat> When the idea that the movie might have been uh, the possibility of a unreliable uh, perspective, unreliable point of view character in Helen, you know, you don't know if she's blacking out and murdering people or if there's really a supernatural event happening. The movie is really interesting. And I feel, and this goes to that two tenths I was talking about, I feel like if they had left it ambiguous and not just then gone off the deep end into, into typical horror. Uh, I probably would say this is almost perfect. There's a, there's a lot here. There's a lot of subtext here. I love the fact that um, getting away from what Clive Barker originally intended with The Forbidden and dealing with sort of modern, cultural, generational, collective trauma uh, due, to, uh, due to racism... I don't, think they really got a, I don't think they really got away with it so much as... Got found. away from it. Like he he had originally intended to talk yeah. about class structure of the 1800s. He's they're talking specifically about like generational racism, generational trauma that the African American experience is wrought with, and I think that's brilliant. Well, um, well it's right, well, I really right. like about it. Yeah, um, they, they they just found another another iteration of iteration of the cycle. So what so. I'm getting at is, I like the idea that Candyman is sort of the stand-in for uh, sort of group collective coping. And mm -hmm. that's what she's implying in the beginning of it when she's not a believer. And I think the movie would have been stronger had they still left that ambiguous. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I like this movie a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, what's her face there? Um, it's a woman's name. Virginia Madsen. <sighs> she doesn't look like the, the kind of person who would lead a horror movie, but she's actually really well casted here. She, I think she does a great job of playing an academic and then getting in over her head. And then she's involved in this. Could it be supernatural? Could it be psychological uh, situation? Um, and it, it doesn't lean too heavily. That's the other thing I, I was really surprised by. It doesn't lean too heavily on the gore. It gets, it goes a little off the deep end at the end, but I think along the way for the first like two thirds of this movie, there's very hardly any gore at all. And a lot of it is tension built up of this, uh, uh, upper class white woman academic in the ghetto of gang ridden Chicago and what all that entails. Uh, I really loved all of that. You know, I, the only, the, the thing at the end of the movie, you know, again, cause, cause there are over the course of the movie, her believability lessens to the point where you, the audience don't know again, is she doing it or is there really a ghost happening here? And then the movie commits to it's a ghost. And the ghost is like, yeah, I got, <laughs> if people don't believe I'm real, I have no power, essentially. And so I have to, you know, every once in a while, I got to come back and remind people I exist just, you know, just to keep myself fed. I'm like, okay, as a supernatural thing, I guess I go along with that. I think where the movie loses me is it like, they had some great ideas, some great subtext, some great themes, um, really great acting on Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen's part. And then we get to this really stupid schlocky ending to where I don't think they knew how to end the movie. And it's like at bonfire and 
<laughs> and then they burn Tony Todd, and he's a ghost, but the, but the fire is affecting him. And I'm like, oh, God, this whole thing is so convoluted. And then she's, like, trying to save the baby. <sighs> I don't know what you think. You probably disagree. But I just thought the ending, that, that, very, that very, very end with the bonfire and her saving the baby was a convoluted mess. But I can, I can almost forgive it for everything else it's saying about the collective trauma of the Black experience. And it's a rare thing to find a statement about that in film, period, let alone in a slasher flick. The last thing I want to say, and then I'll cede the floor to you, um, there was a comment that I had read about this. I was, I was doing some research about the, react, the critical reaction to it, and I guess there were some that were like, the movie's racist, and here's why. Um, it's racist to portray a black man as a horror monster. And the reaction to that, and I agree with, is it's racist to say that they can't. When, you, <laughs> Like, why can't anyone be a horror monster? Man, woman, child, black, white, Indian, Martian. I don't, gay, straight, pan, whatever. I don't, like, why, why is it only one group of people? Um, so I, I just wanted to address that really quick. I think the idea, and that's why I'm kind of glad they remade, <laughs> remade this now with uh, under Jordan Peele, because I think that, and I've said this on any number of podcasts, um, everyone should have an opportunity to play a wide breadth of characters. That's acting. That's, that's the dramatic experience. Saying that you can't make black people negative characters because that's racist really misses the fucking point. Your thoughts, sir. All right. Timed Let's out really well, didn't I? <laughs> right, right, right while you were drinking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, let's play a little game of how succinctly can Sean make some 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 fairly complex points. Um, first off, in terms of seeing it as racist to have a black man portrayed as a horror villain, I could see I could envision a lot of scenarios when that would be a fair point, and I can even see where it's coming from when it comes to Candyman, But I think to just stop there without acknowledging a few, a few other circumstances really does the movie and Tony Todd and maybe even, you know, Clyde Barker as the author of the source material more than a little bit of a disservice. And the fact is the first time through watching this, I was absolutely captivated by what a masterpiece this is of beautiful revenge driven Gothic horror, uh, urban Gothic horror. Uh, in fact, I would, I would venture probably with little disagreement from just about anybody else who is seen as well versed in both of them, that it holds up pretty much neck and neck with Hellraiser and anybody who's listened to us for any significant no <laughs> measure of time knows that I can give a horror movie few greater compliments than to rank it in my kind of personal pantheon up there with the first two Hellraiser movies. But then it's in the subsequent viewings. Once you've, once you've really acknowledged its thematic foundation that you appreciate it, on a whole different level and you start to process uh, kind of each scene 
each each interaction a little bit more deeply. And I'm not going to say that my view of this is definitive. You may agree with it, some of it, you may not. The best I can do is just throw it out there as I've seen it, and you can all just make of it what you what you will. Flame me if you like. Frankly, I'm not going to engage with you because you know what? If you interact with me with something that I post on Twitter or something else, hey, thanks for the engagement, good or bad. I don't have to say anything to you to get anything out of it. You've already done the job for me. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it also bears noting that when it comes to kind of telling the story of any marginalized group, um, I don't care if you're talking about women, the queer the queer community black indigenous people of color you know repressed and repressed um or suppressed rather it's really for um <laughs> um god I'm, I'm looking for it um exploited um certain exploited economic classes what have you if you're telling the story from the outside you're not going it's very hard i not impossible but extremely extremely difficult to pick up on so much nuance that's really that's really required to to kind of get it just so and such is the case when you know you have Clive Barker and Bernard Rose who are sort of providing a, a kind of a brief meditation on the impact of institutionalized racism on Chicago from the, from, you know, the days of the slave trade up to the early nineties. And keep in mind, this came out on the heels of the LA riots and the Rodney King verdict. <laughs> So, I mean, when you think about that, when you think about when the original came out and when you think of every quiet thing that is being said out loud and everything that is being shoved out of the shadows and into the spotlight and center stage in the forefront where it can't be ignored anymore, there's never been a better time for um, Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta to bring their own vision of this to life. In fact, there may, there may never be a time when a, when a remake of a movie like this is more needed when it comes to having something that's new and contemporary to say. But in regards to this movie, you go from the very beginning and the themes are all right there. You have this made-up, clean-cut, academic white academic white woman who is kind of exploring who really starts to explore this story at one point through two, you know, two black women who are mopping the floors. There's an element to this that I think bears um, drawing out <clears throat> initially her issue with her whole thesis in her paper is that's all well-worn territory. When she hears of the Candyman thing, she's like, that's new information that nobody else seems to have that makes our paper publishable. 
And that's mm -hmm. why she started to pursue this. So there's an air of a skepticism, which right and rightly so, but there's also a personal interest in this, in that this subject matter will get her, uh, will get her published. And so that's why she goes down this rabbit hole, which I think is different than some of the other tropes, some of the other tropes in horror where it's like, dummy exploration kids make kids having a fun time that sort of thing or mm -hmm. some sort of supernatural I, I was thinking about poltergeist earlier like i said um you don't learn that they, that they built the houses on top of the indian graves until the very end of the movie but like you know like stuff like that like no this this is something very different well but but on another level i mean i mean lo and behold you have the <laughs> white woman who doesn't who doesn't give a shit <laughs> about about black history until it becomes something that she can that she can exploit right um that's, alongside that's kind of alongside and this could even be seen as a whole as maybe a whole other layer of it right uh, you have a lighter skinned black woman who's kind of distantly removed from this from this culture and this history herself kind of as seen by the fact that she's not looking at any of this with any kind of skepticism whatsoever. And oftentimes in, in many of the scenes, you can kind of see she's not sort of regarded any differently than the posh white woman that she's palling around with. I was listening uh, to um, a critically reclaimed. They did a, an episode of Malcolm X. I guess mm -hmm. there's a scene in, in Malcolm X where a white woman goes up to Malcolm X and, and says, and I actually vaguely remember this from the movie. It's one of my favorites, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, where she's like, Malcolm, what can I, I'm not racist. What can I do to help? And Malcolm looks up this white woman and says, nothing. There's no. nothing you can do to help. Yeah. That, as, as I've come to understand, that, that, is the, that is the answer to it. No, mm -hmm. there is nothing. There is nothing you can do. But, I mean, sometimes you can listen and do the best that you can and believe it and kind of maybe have your mind, have your mind kind of, if not changed entirely, at least expanded right. to accept somebody else's viewpoint. But even if you go from, if you kind of go from there, um, consider that and 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 forgive me my my sense of history may be a little bit off here chicago i would imagine was one of the metro areas that was most significantly changed by redlining so what you've got is you know as as white people flee the city for the suburbs and kind of leave the city to the black community that becomes one stage of segregation, but then you have kind of the, the bullshit process of gentrification mm -hmm. as seen in this movie where all of a sudden the whites even come back in and take, and take what the take, even just kind of uh, the, the crumbs, the shitty public housing that blacks have been left, have been left with. And just kind of drive them out and even kind of make that over by the fact that Helen acknowledges that her apart that her apartment was low income was low income housing. It was just dressed up and whitewashed so that nobody would ever know would ever know the difference. Cause you can't sell it that you can't sell it that way. Mm -hmm. Um that's where we get the the revelation with you know, the medicine cabinet, they go to Cabrini green. And like I said, you've got this, 
you've got the the white woman who's kind of traipsing into the mess that white people have made that they that they contributed to that they that they shaped mm-hmm. and is clearly apprehensive apprehensive because while because while white people shaped it it's all alien to her the woman who plays uh, anthony's mom who's now who's actually in the new one vanessa williams yeah vanessa williams thank yeah. you um she has a great conversation with uh virginia mm-hmm. madison as they're talking like <clears throat> once you once they sort of get past the initial um mm-hmm. issues that they have with each other she has a conversation with her and and it was just, this is where i started paying a lot of closer attention to the movie uh, she starts talking about like you you see from afar and all you see are drug addicts yeah. and drug dealers mm-hmm. you don't see people you don't see people trying to live here and the aesthetic of the scene you know we talk about like a scene construction and i've actually seen this firsthand having mm-hmm. worked in um having been a social worker in the projects of new york mm-hmm. Yes, these are public housing, and when you say public housing, that always has a negative connotation to it. Oh yeah, inside yeah. beautiful homes, beautiful. Like oh yeah, yeah. You know, pictures of the wall on grandchildren. So I'll talk about the movie specifically. Her house, like the outside of it, <clears throat> spray painted, garbage, poop, everything. The, mm-hmm. the worst things you you know that you could come to expect when you say out loud housing project to mm-hmm. most white people, most most people with money, not just white people. Mm-hmm. Um. And then you go inside this woman's house, who's immediately distrustful of Virginia Madison, and why wouldn't she be? And her house and her apartment's gorgeous. It, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is well kept. It is lovely, mm-hmm. you know. And she's saying like, "See me, see us as people. Yeah. You know, the the grade of people from the crappiest to the best goes for all of all denominations. Stop just seeing us all as criminals of one shade or another." And Virginia Madison has to like. <laughs> kind of dance around in the, you know, like, like I didn't, it's like, it was, it was one of, the, I, I hate the term and I don't want to do a whole another hour talking about it, but it, it's, 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 a, it's something the movie speaks to briefly. And it's a big subject now in, in the national conversation. And that's like white privilege. And Virginia is like, per, you know, like it, it doesn't know she has it is the thing like that. That's a common enough thing that people deal wrestle with oh. is they don't realize that they have white privilege. And then the black woman kind of points it out to her and she's like, I, well, this isn't what I want. I, I don't want to be this way. I didn't realize I was this way. And it's a really fun, interesting, mm-hmm. very awkward dance that they do in that scene. Again, not common in horror. Well, yeah, but you, but again, you want to talk about something that's kind of not necessarily acknowledged uh, in a sense, that is kind of what what Tony Todd, what the Candyman becomes when he mm-hmm. talks about being relegated to myth, to whispers in to whispers in the classroom, to nobody really yeah. believing believing in it so much so that he can that he can have. It, it, it speaks a, to the minimization of the black experience. Things like it, yes, the Tulsa. Yes. So. I don't yes, wanna... exactly. Well, that was exactly what I was going to turn to is look at the look at the simple fact that just over the past year, it took a fucking HBO show based on Watchmen yeah. for people to be taught about one of the most historic and tragic moments in black history. And that and there are so many mm-hmm. moments like that. And that is kind of what he symbolizes is right. everything about generations of black experience that isn't even that that isn't even acknowledged they're just they are just 
stories to people. It, it's not processed so as, as, a, as being reality. As a movie that you can rent now digitally and back in the day on home video and Blu-ray and whatnot, for you know, cultured film people, people that want to have these discussions, people that want to do deep dives, I think mm -hmm. this. I think this film has a lot of grist for the mill and has a lot of meat on the bone. Mm -hmm. But that, but having had this discussion, we've had it for almost an hour now, so we got we got really got to move along. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, do you see why this bombed in the box office? Like, oh God, yes. Yeah. Yes. Like people are not going in the. No, I think this new Candyman. If I can briefly say this, I think this new Candyman will do well. It's already tracking to do well. That's that's not mm -hmm. news. But I think in, in 2021, there's an even amount of people willing to go to the theater to be to have this discussion at them um, while also have, going to see a fun horror movie. In 1992, the people wanting to be the people wanting to sit in a theater and think and talk about white privilege and the black cultural traumatic experience. They weren't going to see fucking horror movies. No, it was, it was, a, it was a conversation people were terrified to have. Right. Hell, it, it, I, I'm sure you watched The People versus O.J. Simpson. Sure did. Yeah, which came, which came not too long, not all that long after, after this. You know, right. it, that, even then, that was a conversation that people were utterly terrified, right. white people especially, were terrified to have it, not just themselves, right. but That's to kind of have it in the thing. public at all. That's why I brought up the white privilege thing, because I think there's at least a, in, in the Venn diagram of, uh, of Caucasians that are out there, um, I think you have people who, when you point out white privilege to them, are willing to accept that it's there, but didn't realize it was there before. And you kind of have to have that out of body experience of someone pointing it out to you. Like, I, I just didn't know. I had yep. no idea. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, and be a little bit better. And I think for, I think for most reasonable people of any color, non-white, um, that's all they, that's all they ask of you. you oh, know, yeah, is, yeah. if it's pointed out and you acknowledge it to be true, try to do better. We all try fact, to do better. This was one well, of the big things I, I said about Falcon Winter Soldier. So much of the theme of that was just do better. And you can argue, yeah. piss and moan about Flapton's speech at the end but that's what he was trying to say was like just do a little better i'm sorry well, go ahead. and you know what i'm i'm a streamer i mm -hmm. spend a lot of time on twitch and if you've paid any attention to nerd media recently you know that one of the hugest problems has been the rise in a rash of hate raids on on you know non-white and queer channels in particular in particular and for those unfamiliar to you i'll give i'll give you the short version to kind of break it down like a fraction what that means is when your stream is over a raid is when you can push a button and automatically everybody watching your channel will switch over to the channel of somebody else that you shoot that you choose it's seen as being a courteous thing to do you know my show's done i want to hype somebody else up and i want to boost their channel that's normally the way it goes instead what we ended up getting was a bunch of proud boys a bunch of racist little crotch dumplings proud boys who instead probably more than a few who instead decided that they were going to go find uh bipoc and queer streamers raid their channel but instead of with actual viewers they were going to send over a bunch of view bots that would be programmed to instantly spam their chat with hate speech slurs 
everything that you can imagine. And it's the kind of thing that has been going on on Twitch for a while. And the thing is, you will get people who will tell these streamers who talk about it and who want Twitch to do something who do something about it. Hey, just have a thicker skin. Hey, just ignore it. Hey, we're just here to watch gaming. Hey, we're just here to be nerds and have fun. Don't bring politics in, politics into it. Motherfuckers, how nice it must be to be able to just not talk about it because it isn't your experience. That, my God, yeah, you want to talk about privilege. Because of the color of because of the color of your skin, you have the privilege of not talking about something, of just walking away from it, from just not taking part in that conversation. A whole lot of people don't have a choice because it's not political. It's who they are. It's what they wear on their face every single day. Right. They can't get away from it. I mean, look, I'll 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 acknowledge. Yeah, I'm part of the LGBT community, but I've got it pretty but I've got it pretty easy. I'm I'm, you know, cis I'm cisgender and white. I I don't stand I don't stand out as a target unless you're going by the tags by the tags on my channel. Um you look at a streamer like one of my favorites, Rain Day Gaming or or countless or countless others. They don't have a choice. Somebody takes one look at takes one good look at the cam, right, or at their avatar. So relating this back, and to they become the, a target. So relating this back to the so. Candyman film, you know, <clears throat> it's the, the reason, the whole reason we went on this tangent, and, and so we can wrap up, um, is it's a great movie to talk about now, mm. and we ha we have two other dumb ones to talk about, which is oh, why God, we spent yes. an hour talking about the first one. The first one deserves a wide breath and. and Honestly, and I uh, and just because Sean and I don't want to do nine hour podcasts, we, you know, it, th there's a there's a whole series to be had on the first Candyman movie, um, mm -hmm. just in terms of film structure, in terms of themes, in terms of subtext, um, and so it's it, it's a great it's it, a movie made in 1992. It's great talking about it in 2021. It's very relevant in 2021. Um, other than the, like I said, the goofy ending, which I'll forgive it for. It's one of those movies where it's like, where it's like, ah, I'll forgive how dumb this is at the end <laughs> because it's so good everywhere else. Um, but it is, it is a movie and this is the last thing I'm going to say. Um, and I'll give Sean his 50 words or less, and then we'll move on to the next two films. Um, it is a movie that was like 30 years ahead of its time, believe it or not. It's mm -hmm. such a, and it's such a weird thing to say that 1992 was 30 years ago almost, but yeah, it was, it was, it, it, it it uh, is it un it's unfortunate unfortunately excuse me lumped in with like shocker you know and a lot of you know and a lot of like horror movies of the late 80s early 90s as just here's a big pile of schlock but it's one of those movies that stands out among all of them and it, and like i said is so far ahead of its time that a conversation about it upon reflection is very very worthy um last thing and then go and then we'll be done Again, it's it's a movie that didn't need a sequel. No, it, it was it was no, it was <laughs> praise baby it, Jesus. No, it, it was it was destined to get at least one because of just what an acclaimed hit it was. But you know, the whole revenge cycle really right. came full circle. I, I know you didn't like the ending, but frankly, I thought it was perfectly apropos yeah. to have to have Helen kind of kind of give her man and his mistress. There, oh, there come up. It's, yeah, I, I was that, fine with 
that's the part I'm fine with. The bonfire was, I thought was cool. Yeah. Um, I was I was fine with her not coming away from the bonfire unscathed mm-hmm. by by the whole thing. Again, there there's some symbolism there that I'm not gonna go into because Mark, you really granted me a ton of leeway and I appreciate it. I don't I don't want to abuse the privilege. But it is if you love gothic horror. And again, especially especially urban gothic, this is an absolute is an absolute must see. It, it is the cinematic equivalent to reading Neil Gaiman's Sandman. If you if you have any love for the medium for the genre at all, you need to at some point take it in at least once. Yeah. Um. If you're listening to this contemporaneously, you know, if this is recording on a Thursday night, it'll come out the day Candyman releases uh, wide release in theaters on Friday. If you're getting a chance to listen to it this weekend, w- watch the first one and then compare. And then if you have if you have the opportunity to go to the theater with your mask on and your vaccinations. Um, <laughs> just saying uh, or not, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, for, for, for the for, for the record, compare. just for for the record, just putting this out there, first movie is available for streaming on Peacock. The second is available for free with an Amazon Prime subscription, and, and the, the yes, and the third is available on Hulu. Just to round it all out. All right, um, let's take a quick pause for the cause and talk about one of our great sponsors here called Grammarly. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistakes for you on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. It won't help you write a better ending than this movie, but it will <laughs> But it will correct your grammar and your spelling and help you find better words like a result. Grammarly's correct hundreds of grammar punctuation spelling mistakes will also contact, uh, catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, it's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. I we were talking on the other night on the podcast about how my autocorrect changes new to N-E-E with an like with an accent mark. I don't know why. I don't know when I've ever used that. Um uh, I, it changed. Oh, I like it like an unloud? Yeah, kind of. So and then, it, and then I, I said something about my, I, I said something about Adam Cole going to AEW, changed it to Coke, and of course I got ridiculed on Twitter for that. <laughs> I saw that. I did see and I'm that. Like, God, God, boy, do I need Grammarly to help me not change Cole to Coke against my will. All right. <laughs> speaking of Coke, um, <laughs> fucking Candyman too. Uh, all right. So Candyman, um, farewell to the flesh. I. This is one of those deals with like Austin Powers where it doesn't do well in theaters, but you know it does so well posthumously that they end up doing a sequel. Um, and you know, and everyone loved Tony Todd coming out of the Candyman, so it was like let's 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 do more with him. Um, so, Sean, in like fifty words or less, you got any real quick production notes on this stinker that came out not in nineteen ninety five? Okay. I, I, not really. We we can just go right into talking about the movie because nothing about the production captivated me remotely as much as the first one did. Sounds great. Um, All right. So let's uh, play a little trailer here for you uh, while we go through what um, some people would call a plot. All right. Three three years after the Candyman murders in Chicago, Cole Tarrant, the father of New Orleans school teacher Annie Tarrant, is murdered while investigating the deaths of three men in a manner similar to the Candyman legend. So, yes, we go from Chicago to the Big Easy. 
one year later, Professor Philip Purcell writes a book about the case. The Candyman kills Purcell in a public bathroom following a book signing. Annie's brother, Ethan, is accused of Purcell's murder because of the previous confrontations between the two over the subject. After one of Annie's students claims to have seen the Candyman, she tried to discredit the legend by invoking his name. Annie summons the Candyman in New Orleans on the eve of Mardi Gras, and the killings begin in earnest. Her husband, Paul McKeever, becomes one of the Candyman's victims, and one of her students, Matthews, disappears. Like you do. All right. So uh, the next thing that happens... The Candyman is revealed to be Daniel Robitaille, who was the son of a slave on a plantation in New Orleans. Daniel was chosen by wealthy landowner Hayward Sullivan to paint a portrait of his daughter, Caroline. Like one of his French girls. Sweet Caroline. Bah, 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 bah. Resulting in an affair between the two, because of course it would. After Caroline became pregnant, Hayward organized a lynch mob to hunt Daniel down. This is everything we got from the first movie. Moving on. <clears throat> the mob cut off his right hand, covered him with honey from a nearby beehive. A small boy tasted the honey and yelled, Candyman! <sighs> the crowd chanted the name as Daniel. Ooh, weirdo. Was... Yeah, really. Um, stop licking black men. Um, <laughs> Hayward taunted the disfigured Daniel with Caroline's mirror, leading to the mirror that was in the Candyman's soul. At least you waited until you didn't have a mouthful of something this time, you son of a bitch. I'm not even looking at you. I'm still looking at the Wikipedia page. Caroline hid the mirror in Daniel's birthplace before giving birth to Isabel, a Creole woman whom she raised as white. The mirror grants the Candyman his ability to kill when called upon. Okay, so now we have the big backstory. Annie is revealed to be a direct descendant of Daniel and Caroline. The Candyman stalks Annie so he may kill her and himself at midnight on Ash Wednesday, because it's always good to keep a schedule. After talking with Ethan, Annie visits uh, Honore Thibodeau, who tells her that Caroline moved to Nolens after Daniel's death. The Candyman appears and kills him with bees, covered in bees, while Annie escapes. Bees, my God. <laughs> Why did it have to be bees? Um, at the police station, the Candyman slays a detective who was interrogating Ethan, who was shot dead when he tries to escape. Octavia, not Spencer, uh, but she really would have classed this movie up. Um, she have, though? Annie's guilt-ridden mother admits that Coleman tried to link their family to the Candyman. However, she denies that he existed. Licensed, uh, incensed, rather, by her disbelief, the Candyman introduced himself before killing her. Hello there. And Annie flees. It is revealed that Coleman, who was driven to madness, I tell you, by his search for the mirror, eventually gave in and succumbed to the Candyman to justify the search at the expense of his life. And he flees to Daniel's birthplace, where she finds Matthew. She falls through the stairs like you do. Um, I like the money pit. Into the flooded basement, where she finds the mirror and the Candyman. He reveals that the mirror is the source of the resurrection and tries to sacrifice her. And he destroys the mirror, annihilating the Candyman. In the process, the slave quarters crash into the river, but Matthew saves Annie by pulling her out. Five years later... The Avengers have no. Um, Annie has Paul's daughter and names her Caroline. After Annie kisses Caroline goodnight and leaves the room, Caroline starts to chant the Candyman's name, and Annie runs Dumbass. in the room and punches. And Annie runs in the room and punches her dead in the face. No, um, tells her like to stop she and should. Go to bed. <laughs> stop, like Loki, stop setting cars on fire. You stop yelling <laughs> Candyman in the mirror. God damn it! All right, let me just say this, and then I uh, and you can mm. say whatever you want to say about the stupid movie. There's a good movie to be had here. Here's oh, yeah. the thing. Here's the thing. They really should have just stopped at one because it was darn near perfect, as we've already said. But if you're going to go and and, and you're like, yeah, but there's so much lore that we set up in the first movie that we didn't explore because we were dealing with more contemporary <laughs> stuff. Let's do a movie that deals with the lore. 
okay, let's deal with a movie that sets up more of the rules, you know, with the mirror and stuff. Okay. Oh, look, it's Daniel Robitaille, the answer <laughs> to the question that nobody asked. Like I said, if, if you're, if you're, you know, you're like, hey, we have IP, we need to make money off of this, and, uh, you know, let's try to do another movie, see if we can squeeze some more milk out of his teeth. Fine. Um, there was lore to explore, and I think the bones of this movie were good. Um, I, I think, the, you know, the idea of this woman kind of exploring the roots of her family that, you know, uh, that she's attached to this guy, you know. When your 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 point of view character changes from you know from middle aged white skeptic privileged lady to I need to find out what the curse of my family is so that I can end it and move on with my life. Okay, I'm with you so far. The problem with this movie was it's boring as shit. It does what you and I have complained about on this podcast for ten years now, which is more dinosaurs. So, because it's like it forgot the subtext of the first movie and was like, what we want to see is more people killed with bees. <laughs> and the, so, the original deadly bee weapon. So, it's like no subtext, doesn't deal with the racial question, has a great idea in, you know, and in, in exploring the lore, but it's kind of stupid. And then it's just more gory kills. And so, I had to read three and four times that this wasn't a direct DVD sequel because I thought it was. This screamed like direct to VHS. Um, it's not good. And compared to the next one, it's fucking Schindler's List. But yeah. <laughs> um, that's really it. I mean, like I said, uh, and, and I'll shut up after this, but I wanted to like this movie because I liked what kind of what they were trying to say with her exploration of her family lineage mm -hmm. but then they don't really say anything and then it's just about stupid kills and i'm not into that as i've already said a thousand times so sean your thoughts on the candy man farewell to the flesh well i mean more which sounds like a porno by the way <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry go on Mitt. <laughs> which 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 probably still would have been better than day of the dead <laughs> but you know more than the fact that there are no memorable characters in this movie and not, not one of them who's, who's even remotely worthy of any investment whatsoever, quite the way that Helen Lyle was in the first one. The biggest problem, the biggest missed opportunity is the fact that, yeah, okay, you want to maybe maintain some connective tissue to the first movie. You want to maybe explore the lore a little bit. You set this movie in one of the hotbeds, one of the hubs for the American slave trade. And you, you just, you didn't make even the slightest little bit of use out of it. I, I fail to see the point of even, of even setting this against the backdrop of Mardi Gras, because even those shots weren't particularly colorful. Right. Th those scenes weren't especially memorable. They didn't really add anything. You took a surprisingly thoughtful commentary and you reduced it to a generic, absolutely forgettable 
slasher. And yeah, you tried to, yeah, you tried to make it a lore drop. Good for you. You wrote and executed one of the most flaccid lore drops in horror history. Have a cookie. (laughs) The only thing saving this movie is the fact that Tony Todd brings it in every single solitary second. He is on camera and fuck me if that glorious glorious man didn't deserve better than this if he didn't deserve so so much better just it's it's not worth seeing <laughs> there's there is nothing I really regretted giving you the choice between a long road to ruin and an on trial and and, and, and I'm, I'm happy we're here i'm happy we're doing this but upon reflection Boy, did we just need to talk about the first movie and forget the and forget <laughs> uh, forget about the shortcut and there's never Truth. speak of the shortcut again. Truth. But yeah, I mean, you you had a chance <laughs> to make something worthwhile, and you just you you just completely completely blew it. You played mm-hmm. you played it in the most mundane, safe direction that anybody could have imagined and i'll say it again it it, yeah you're absolutely right this should have ended up with annie tarant bursting into that room and absolutely cold cocking (laughs) caroline like she was brock lesnar and caroline was heath herring before she managed to get that last word out you stupid little shit and you're sure that and she, if she knows enough to do that, you know it's because Mama probably warned her, right? And she's just gonna up and decide to do it, you moron. And the and last but not least, this could have been forgivable if this might have maybe had an actual memorable kill or two, right? But the only one of those that really stands out is because of the maniacal detective in the interrogation room mm-hmm. who decides to to call little Tarant's bluff you know he he is he is just having having a blast with with with, with his with his mockery in the mirror and then you get that surveillance camera footage mm-hmm. of him being jacked up off the ground off the ground completely invisible invisibly that was really well executed um it's hell that would have that that was one of the few things that i think would have maybe added to the first movie and i'm glad they got it done here but by that point it's too little far 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 too late because you've already reduced the the racial themes to lip service to lip service. I didn't I didn't care about any of these characters except for the fact that I felt like maybe the movie wanted me to. So, you know, I, I kind of played along a little bit, but by about the last 15 minutes, Ann and I were both playing with our cell phones. <laughs> so yeah. Well, they tried again in 1995 with this. No, not 1999. Sorry, this is not try implies effort. Uh well, it's like I can just imagine like the pitch meeting, you know, the elevator pitch of this, like, Hey, a couple years ago, we had, a, we had kind of a sleeper hit with Candyman, and then we did another one and it sucked. But what if we tried again? 
And maybe, maybe the problem is we're hitting the wrong market. Okay, well, what are you thinking about this next one? The same movie as the second one, but Latinos. Okay, I, and I, I, have a, I have a question. What? I, I, I have a question about something. Sure. Um, what was meant to be added by both sequels being set against Holidays? I, I, I don't get because neither really particularly strongly invokes mm-hmm. either holiday. And you know, the the the, the whole the, the whole backstory of Daniel Robitaille, I don't see how it would really tie into the spirit of Mardi Gras necessarily, because he was he was a respected artist who was chased down by a lynch mob for romancing a white woman. I, I don't understand what that would have to do. If you wanted to do a crowd shot of with conf- where your perspective character is in a mass of chaos. And then it, it's a poor way of playing with the unreliable narrator perspective. So in the first one, if she's in the middle of Mardi Gras and all kinds of crap is happening, is it real or isn't? And they were like, let's do that again. What other holiday has a mass of people in the streets? Uh, well, it's like that level of stupidity. And 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 by this and by the same token, you know, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. It's not really a, necessarily like a Halloween mm-hmm. type holiday that's necessarily rooted in anything scary or malevolent. It's it's meant to be a respectful holiday of reflection mm-hmm. and and honoring the dead i mean if if we're talking about american holidays it, it strikes me that maybe it has more in common with memorial day mm-hmm. if if anything and and you know day of the dead you know isn't limited to just honoring fallen servicemen it's it's the it's the dead of all of all generations, and even that isn't really employed that strongly here, except for just a superficial backdrop. And I don't really see how that would tie in. Honestly, like I said, I to Daniel from, from, from a very from a very like just kind of thinking of the way the studio executives think it's like, well, maybe we'll get an audience with a Latino audience. So let's make it day of the dead. And it's like that stupid of a thing. Um, all right. So the plot of this Turkey, uh, is it's 2020, 25 years after the events of the second film in 1995, the ghostly serial killer returns once again from beyond the grave, this time during the day of the dead to haunt a Los Angeles art gallery owner named Caroline McKeever, who my wife thought was Tara Reed to my ever look growing. hilarity. <laughs> um, Don Dierico, Tara Reid, yeah, I could see it. Yeah, so, so could I, and it's just it's so funny that I could also see modern day Tara Reid in a, something like this. Caroline is Annie Turan's daughter and a direct descendant of the Candyman, and is also the reincarnation of Candyman's daughter Isabel. The Candyman seeks to claim her soul, so she would be next to him. In the meantime, the Candyman kills all those who are associated with Caroline, including Miguel Velasco and his lover Lena, and Caroline's roommate Tamara, in his usual gory fashion with his hook. Yada, yada, yada. He then kidnaps Caroline's friend, David LaPaz, 
and frames Caroline as one of the ones responsible for all the killings. A seasoned police detective named L.V. Sacco is murdered by the Candyman while Caroline is in the car, which both brings her heat from the local authorities and earns her hate from Sacco's partner, Lieutenant Racist. I mean, Lieutenant, <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Detective Samuel Deacon Kraft, who had no intention of bringing her in alive. Very alive. Oh, no. Anyway, um, moving on. Uh, Caroline is kidnapped by a gang who takes her to an abandoned building where she is tied to a chair and gag. The gang summons the Candyman in the hopes of sacrificing Caroline to him in order to end the murders. The Candyman kills the entire gang instead. No good deed goes unpunished. He reveals to Caroline that the, her dementia-ridden mother, Annie, had told her his story and implored her to destroy the myth and believe the early, believing the earlier events to be taking place, called his name, gave herself to him, and brought him back to the world like you do. The Candyman killed Annie by slitting her throat with his hook, uh, which is what he does. And uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, making it look like a suicide. He also reveres, reveals that Caroline killed her father, Paul, her uncle, Ethan, and her grandparents, Coleman and Octavia. Caroline, who is enraged at this revelation, threatens to kill him for murdering her family. He's a fucking ghost. But the Candyman disappears. Caroline explores the building and finds David alive, but injured. Candyman suddenly appears and attempts to, uh, to convince her to give her life to him. Caroline changes her mind and destroys the paintings by Candyman that symbolize his life with a hook, causing the Candyman to burst into flames that kill him for good because, hey, it worked in the first movie. Caroline frees David, but is, but is attacked by Detective Kraft, who tries to kill her with a hook. He is shot in the back by the head detective, Jamal Matthews, who was following Kraft. Before he dies... Um, Kraft gaps out Candyman <laughs> Caroline remembers her mother's advice to destroy the myth and tells Matthew that Kraft was the Candyman this whole time as he claimed after news is released that Candyman was that Kraft was Candyman Caroline states there is no such thing as Candyman in front of a mirror to ensure he is dead the Candyman hook bursts through the mirror but it is revealed it is just a nightmare Caroline has a picnic with David and his daughter Christina in front of Anne's grave as the Day of the Dead celebrations continue. She is finally happy and is convinced the Candyman no longer exists. Hooray. Let me say this one thing about the movie, and then you can have the final word, and we can be done for the night. Um, when the movie was talking about art and talking about him as an artist, I was actually kind of interested in it. I was like, oh, this is, yeah. this is, a, this is a different take, mm -hmm. and I'm fascinated with this. Um, I like the idea that she's she has this horrible legacy and she's trying to like, my legacy is stained in bullshit and nonsense. Why don't we just talk about the, this, you know, this tragic figure as what he was. He was a painter and a scholar and he was well-to-do and he, he was the American dream, you know, born a slave and rose to prominence and asked to do uh, things for wealthy people uh, that, you know, and asked to make art for wealthy people, like, mm. you know, a life we should all want to live. Let's talk about that. And when the movie was doing that, I was with it. I was like, oh, cool. Okay, this isn't dumber than shit. And then it was like, okay, there's your 10-minute setup. Let's go to Dumbsville. And after, you know, and then after that, it's just like, you know, it stops talking about anything. It stops being about anything. You know, someone in production had to be like, hey, this movie's about racism, or the this series is about racism. Well, so okay, let's write in a really over-the-top racist cop. Like racist cops had to look at him and go, Jesus Christ, man, we're not that bad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like, like, look, I'm not trying to make light of of the unfortunate generational issues with policing, but no, um, but like, 
it's one of those things where even in 1999, you still have to you, you still have to be a little bit more deft at handling uh, police brutality and, ra- and institutional racism. And they're just not in this movie. It's so over the top and so bad. He might have had he might have just had a long mustache and a top hat, you know, and, you know, been Detective Torley McMustache. Like, yeah. is that bad? Yeah, and it takes when, you out of the, it's so when, stupid. It takes you out of the movie. When your movie you just know has the potential to make Daryl Gates and Mark <laughs> Furman roll their fucking eyes. Right. Yeah. It's you, you yeah. have struck something and it ain't gold. So to conclude, um, not Tara Reed. She tries. She's not a good actress. This movie is not good. No. Um, no. You know, and, 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 and I, and I, I want to pinpoint them at the moment at which the movie lost me. And that is the kill in the apartment where she, where, because I love the scene, I love the scene where they're where they're arguing about the about how the gallery should present this character, this mm-hmm. ex- exhibit, and he's like, "Look, man, we got to sell the gallery. We got to have a hook here." And so, if we talk about Candyman, that hooks people in and gets people to see these paintings that you want them to see. And she's like, "This is the kind of exploitation I'm trying to avoid." And he's like, yeah. "I hear what you're saying, but money." <laughs> and, then, and then five minutes later in the scene itself, you know, she's like, he was a painter. He was a this. He was a that. And she's really trying hard. And he, like, shoves her into the pool practically. And he's like, yeah, but Candyman times five. And, you know, and then there's, and then, like, the, the camera pans and there's, like, punk rockers. Like, mm, yes. Oh, the, the fucking goth kids. Yeah, like, the goth kids. Oh, and they're just like, absolutely. Geez. We're here for the death and destruction. It's like, okay, that's, and then so I, I brought that up to talk about the scene that actually lost me because that was all kind of fine. <laughs> when he, when he who pushed her in the pool is with what appears to be a stripper, and they're you know and they're having sexy fun time, and and Candyman shows up and eviscerates the two of them. First of all, it's the most awkwardly poorly shot kill scene I've seen in a horror movie in quite some time. Like I was mm-hmm. actually taken aback at the D level straight to VHS effort that was put into that particular kill scene. And then, and more specifically about how like the, the girl who's naked. And, and here's the thing. This is why it lost me. Cause I'm, I'm not avert. I, I have no aversions to boobs as we all well know, but no, like this was exploitive to the point where I'm uncomfortable and I worked in porn. Like she's just standing there on the bed naked boobs, akimbo. And <laughs> And it's like the camera pans away and it's back again. And it's just a flat frame shot of her tits. And it's back again. And it's going back. And then she's covered in bees. You and worked you... in porn? Uh, I worked for Rob Black's XPW. Uh... Really? Oh, you? Did... I've never told you that story. Like that Rob Black? That Rob Black, yes. I worked... Oh, shit. I wrote ad copy for his pornography tapes. And then I trained in his wrestling school. And I'm on his, uh, I'm on his wrestling TV show in a couple places. I no, can't I believe in that. 10 some odd years I've never told you that. No, anyway. you never mentioned that. Yeah, I don't talk about it much. Anyway, <laughs> um, the, the point is um, it's just a, it's just such a flat shot and such a grotesquely exploitive shot. It's like tits, death, tits, okay. yeah. death. Look, look, over look, again. How, look how far we've fallen from the studio <laughs> actually building a temporary apiary on set so they can raise 
actual bees and put the newborns to work flying out of Tony Todd's mouth to this <laughs> to just intercutting between shots of inc- of increasingly large large amorphous blobs of fake bees yeah being so glued bad. to this actress's mommy milkers <laughs> so your thoughts it's on so it's really bad it, this this mm. is it's exploitive but exploitive in the way that like you make like bad movies to go to send on a vhf <laughs> a vhs store shelf like it's almost like a mockbuster. That's that's how this comes across. Like like it's not the third yeah. Candyman. It's Fandyman, and it's a mockbuster yeah. of of the Candyman movie. All right, I'm gonna shut up and let you have the last word, and then we're done. I mean, and you know, if if you're going to swap from the long tragic history of the black community in America to uh, to another oft exploited and marginalized uh minority group and another another kind of out group if you will you know you could have at least had had daniel robitaille opine a little bit give him give him a monologue Mm -hmm. about the way this country treats the people whose hands built it sure. who gave up who gave us everything talk about that the dark war white, yeah yeah that that white america has co-opted and ex and exploited and mm-hmm. just kind of and just kind of taken as as their own just kind of one crumb at a time you could have done that but instead you've even taken one of the finest true actors to ever come along in the horror genre and you just reduce him to parroting the same lines out of context that were so effective in the original given their context i was so bored with this yeah it's so much of what he's saying just becomes decreasingly relevant as you go through these sequels because hollywood has Hollywood missed so much of the point mm-hmm. of what garnered the first movie all that respect and all that acclaim and all that relevance in the first place. And so many times they've had opportunities to go along and reclaim maybe just a little bit of it or reinvent it or breathe new life into it. Fuck it. I'll go out on a limb here. You want a movie that's set against a minority culture's backdrop and actually does it a service with some authenticity and some actual appreciation and manages to still actually be genuinely fucking scary at times. I guarantee you going to be a surprise to everybody, which movie I'm going to recommend paranormal activity, the marked ones it's even set against the backdrop of an urban Latino family. And it felt like it gave the movie far more of a character than this did. And I feel like this movie probably had several times the marked one's budget mm-hmm. to work with. Definitely more resources. It definitely lends itself to a more versatile format. The marked ones was a found footage movie. 
you can only really you have to get pretty inventive to get something original about that and that movie having rewatched it years later actually really does here you've got the format of a traditional horror movie and you're not doing anything more than clumsily parroting the tropes of the first of the first movie with none of the context absolutely none of the subtext um you know god bless donna dierico and nick corey especially for the fact that they were trying but actors who with the exception of tony todd are about one millionth <laughs> as talented as the likes of virginia madsen and xander berkeley it's it's no wonder i i think in preparation for this, I, I watched um, the the Kill Count episodes on the Dead Meat YouTube channel for each of these. And I think James A. Janice speculated. I think this went direct to HBO. So, yeah, let that sink in. We're working with an HBO budget here. And this was the best that they could pathetically fart out. <laughs> ignore the fact this movie exists entirely. In fact, ignore both of them, skip them, watch the first one and then go out and whether you choose to safely go to the theaters and see Nia DaCosta and uh Jordan Peele's retelling or if you should decide to just wait and catch it on demand demand at home please see the new one it's even getting really pretty promising reviews yeah it's it's um the new far. one is uh yeah. is like in the 90s on rotten tomato yeah i mean you know i i live in far southern banjo land <laughs> where where our county is sitting at a sub 25% vaccination rate so chances are ann and i are not going to the theaters we'll We'll just wait and catch it at home one way. Well, or lucky for you, every single studio has negotiated like five minutes of a window in theater. So it'll be, I yeah, mean, I think um, Respect I, came out like a, like a week or two ago. You can actually like rent it this Friday. Yeah, I think, I think that um, I think that Amazon Prime even mm -hmm. has, has some kind of, er, it was a listing for early access when we were yeah. scrolling through it on the PS4 app. I didn't, I don't know what that means, but I don't know. Maybe it means you can go ahead and prepay for it and buy and add it to your library something like I don't that know. I, um, I know i know the windows for uh availability for home demand um shortened to like 45 yeah. days in a, yeah. in a lot of cases yeah. but yeah. i can't i can't remember what the story is for universal but yeah you'll be able to watch this pretty but quickly. but but yeah to put the to put the finest point possible on it make a long story short well it's a little bit late for that <laughs> um wait wait since I, you did it Uh, I, I was going more for the line from Clue. I, I, I got it. <laughs> uh, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but also a good one. Um, I would say watch the watch the first one. Appreciate its relevance for its time and for the fact that it has aged spectacularly well uh, for, a, for a product of the early 90s. Uh, check out the new one. Please let us know on Twitter what you think. Spare us the spoilers. But give us but give us your thoughts and yeah just uh, just write these last two movies off as Candyman. tony todd deserved better hey real quick what are you listening to these days 
Oh man, a lot of things. I've got uh, I've got about a hundred song long soundtrack from Roadrunner, a movie about a film about Anthony Bourdain. Yes. Uh, yeah, lots more classic punk and hardcore. Um, our good friend Stuart from our days at Four One One Mania recommended a great Fugazi Wu Tang Clan mashup called Wu called Wugazi. Okay, I need to check that out because yeah, Wu-Tang oh, oh, oh it is. With. Oh my, oh my man. It is as good as you think it sounds right now in your head, just at the idea. The reality is even better. I was um, never like a huge Fugazi fan, but I'll take anything associated with the Wu Tang clan. Yeah. Um, and I've been listening to some latter day Deftones because one of my best friends listened to Ohms, which I had somehow missed. Uh, said that it was spectacular, said that it was as good as White Pony. I was skeptical, gave it a lesson, and I I was blown away. I don't know about good as white good as white pony, mm-hmm. but man, you listen to it, and the boys have not lost a step. Yeah, I tell you, um, as we talk about a great service, AmazonMusic.com, mm-hmm. that I was not the world's biggest Deftones fan back in the day when when they were extemporaneous really? and current. Um, but I think as I've gotten older and I've mellowed out and I've been, I'm definitely able to enjoy more things now than I used to, uh, I, Deftones is on the list of things I want to give a second, a second listen to, because I have found the things that I dismissed in my angrier youth, I'm liking now in my sickly forties. So, um, (laughs) um, as I, as I grow old and everything falls apart. Uh, so if you're like me and you want to give something a second listen to that you used to dismiss in your angry youth, you should click our link at getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network. That's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network to get a free 30 days of Amazon music on us. All right. Um, real quick plug and nothing, um, nothing long and drawn out like we normally do. Uh, this Tuesday. So this is going to be up Friday, the 27th of August, depending on when you're listening to it. Um, Tuesday the 31st, me and 900 other people, from what I can tell, are going to be reviewing the new Candyland movie that we've kind of talked about hither and thither throughout this episode. So give that a listen. Uh, other stuff that we did this past week, um, associated with this, as a matter of fact, uh, Sean Comer and Robert Winfrey, the aforementioned Sean Comer, currently on video, um, <laughs> in this podcast, as a matter of fact. Him and Robert Winfrey uh, on one of my exes mm-hmm. uh, did a two-part Hellraiser review, speaking of Clive Barker. Um, that's up in the archives now. Uh, the first part is the first three movies. The second part is all the rest. And you can hear Sean and Robert famously lament the direction the Hellraiser franchise <laughs> went to on that second part, which apparently is infamous. Everybody talks about it. Um in addition to which, myself and Christian wrapped up my run <laughs> on uh, Source Material. I'm done. Uh, Sean actually was on an episode of Source Material with Jesse Starcher. Uh, he came back a month earlier than uh, he was supposed to just to do me a favor and get Sean to talk about the Technus Imperative when Titans Season 3 mm-hmm. debuted. So that's in the archives as well. Um, myself and Christian wrapped up my run on source material with X-Men Deadly Genesis by Ed Brubaker, a uh, continuation of the House of M storyline. Um, hey, we're about to wrap this podcast up. But if you're like, no, I wish you guys would talk for three hours. <laughs> check out me and Rob Winfrey talking about Odd Taxi for that. We went two and a half hours. And at one point, I think I asked him, so why do you think Japanese men are so lonely? And then nine hours later... <laughs> <laughs> 
so yeah, odd taxi. We had a really long but fun discussion. Um, and speaking of uh, fun discussions, myself and Pat Mullen added another chapter in the book of the Four Kings. This time uh, it was chapter three, and we talked about Sugar Ray Leonard. All right, twitch and shout, Sean. <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter at Comer Codex, where I talk about God, I word vomit over any number of things throughout the day. Uh, typically, it's anything from promoting podcasts and talking about what I'm listening to and playing at the time to, fair warning, some very political and, soci and socially conscious rantings. <laughs> um, food might be food porn, might be hockey, might be professional wrestling weird combinations of everything. Uh, but it's also the best place to catch up on when I am going to be streaming at twitch.tv slash Comer Codex. I'm a variety streamer. I play a lot of both story-based and competitive games throughout the week. I'm still working on fleshing out a steady, consistent schedule, but I'm usually on from about 8 p.m. Central Time. I usually know later than about 10 p.m. Central Time most nights. I would say if you want to if you want to follow, hey, bless you. Thank you for that. But uh, I would not recommend pledging any bits or subscribing right now as Twitch needs to be starved of some money and kind of taught a lesson about protecting all their streamers, not just the cishet white ones. Uh, instead, I'm working on getting some buttons up to direct people to my PayPal and Cash App pages if you wish to directly support me that way. But you know what? I will settle for those. <laughs> Settling sounds so pithy. I will be more than happy and grateful for any and everybody who just wants to stop by and chat, talk gaming, and have a good time for a few hours. All right. Um, so if you have listened to this show and you're like, but when more Sean? Well, when more Sean will be October. Uh, the next long road to ruin is the Dalton Bonds. We're doing that to go along with you No know, Time to Die. Uh, and we'll actually be re-airing our Daniel Craig Bonds that we did. Um, Sean and I will be doing an on-trial for Halloween Resurrection. Mm -hmm. And uh, in time for its anniversary, its 20-year anniversary... Whatever version he and I can find that we can both agree on, that's how we're doing this. Because <laughs> I can't find, because I can only find one version uh, online. Sean and I will be doing the 20 year anniversary look back on trial for Donnie Darko. That's basically just going to be me saying, and here's Sean. Um, <laughs> and Sean's going to yell for an hour about Donnie Darko and I'm going to go yes it was bad and no, then I, we're going to I, I, I don't yell I don't yell about much these days I have purposely mm. kind of kind of worked that out of my shtick but mm. this this is going to be some hilarious bafflement yeah so I, yes we got the Dalton Bonds <laughs> Halloween Resurrection and Donnie Darko coming up in October those are the next three get togethers for Sean and I until then for Sean, you're not. I'm Mark. Be well, be safe, and behave.